Sometimes in a movie, the scenes will cut back and forth between two different characters uh, with what appears to be two distinct plot lines. And then all of a sudden, at some point in the movie, the storylines merge and weave together suddenly, unexpectedly, and it's usually like this aha moment of brilliance. Oh, all along that was going on and they're connected, right? And something like that is happening in our text this morning. We've met Zechariah and Elizabeth and rejoiced with them when the angel Gabriel came and told them that their prayers were answered. They were going to have a baby at long last in their old age. And we watched as Elizabeth withdrew into seclusion for five months, cherishing this pregnancy to herself, this miraculous life within her. And then the screen, you know, the screen fades to black. And then the camera opens up on a new scene and coming into focus is a young girl, a Galilean virgin named Mary, who's getting ready for her wedding day. She's betrothed and engaged, but she's waiting for her marriage and she encounters the same angel, the angel Gabriel, who comes to her. And we share in her astonishment as she is told that she has been chosen by God to bear the Savior, the King, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God into the world. And we marveled with Mary as she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But just before Mary gave her consent to be called to this noble task, Gabriel mentions a detail that seems very random and sort of disconnected, out of place. It's in verse 36, Luke 1:36. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And his point, of course, is that nothing will be impossible with God, verse 37. But that little detail all of a sudden linked together these two pregnancies. These two seemingly disparate stories are now bound together in a common storyline. It turns out that Mary and Elizabeth, they're actually related. And there are two miraculous pregnancies going on at the same time. One is six months ahead of the other. And as Mary is over here processing what has just happened, feeling utterly unique and alone in the world. Who, I mean, who on earth can she talk to about this, right? Who's po- who will possibly believe her story? Her parents are not going to understand. Her fiance is going to freak out, right? He's going to be super suspicious. Her friends are not going to understand. No one else is going through anything like this. I mean, how many angelically announced miraculous pregnancies are there possibly going on in the world, right? But in the mercy and kindness of the Lord, there's at least one more. One more, right? One other miraculous pregnancy at the same time, and it happens to be someone she already knows someone she's actually related to, who she can go visit, and it won't raise any red flags for anybody. And so within days of her conversation with Gabriel, Mary packs her bags, heads south, 
to the one person on earth who will be sure to understand what she's going through. She goes to see Elizabeth. And these two ladies' stories merge into a common plot line. This is amazing. Grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, 39 to 56, verses 39 to 56. This is page 856 in your Bible. If you want to grab your pew Bible there and join us, 856, Luke 1, 39. Let's begin reading there. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down from the, the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. There are three startling surprises in this text. I want to show them to you this morning. We find an unexpected witness, an unlikely pedigree, and an unparalleled kingdom. There's your outline for this morning. An unexpected witness, an unlikely pedigree, and an unparalleled kingdom. Would you bow your heads and pray, and we'll jump in. Father, you are constantly surprising us with the way that you work in the world. Everything we think we know about how to get ahead in life and what it means to come out on top, it turns out is wrong because you delight to do the unexpected. So Father, help us to see your heart and to comply with the way that you have made ultimate reality. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So first of all, we have an unexpected witness here. As we begin, let's get our chronology in order. Uh, there's a lot going on in these passages, but Gabriel, shows up to Zechariah when he's called up for his time of service in the temple. 
uh, his priestly service. Uh, we see in Luke 1, 23 and 24 that when Zechariah's time of service had ended, he went home. And after these days, it says, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden. So she decides, you know, she's been wanting a child for so long and it's finally happening, but it's so precious to her I think she's scared to say it out loud to too many people just in case something goes sideways, okay? So she's keeping quiet for five months. Now, in chapter 1, verse 26, Luke timestamps Gabriel's visit with Mary um, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So Elizabeth is just entering her third trimester when Mary finds out she's going to become pregnant. Not pregnant yet, but about to become pregnant. Now, in verse 39, we read, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, in which days is he talking about? In those days, he says, in which days? Well, in the days immediately following Gabriel's announcement, of what was going to happen. We read that Mary arose and went with haste, okay? In other words, no delay. She hears the announcement, she hears Elizabeth also is having a pregnancy of her own, and she thinks, I gotta go talk to Elizabeth. So it, without any delay, she packs her bags, she arranges whatever she needs to arrange, and she hightails it down to Judea in the south, a two to three day journey to go visit her relative Elizabeth. Then, after all of these things that we just read about in with this encounter with Elizabeth, Mary decides to stay there three months. Down in verse 56, we read, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So here's what's going on. Basically, Mary is staying with Elizabeth for the duration of Elizabeth's third trimester. Okay, and she, which also is Mary's first trimester. Okay, these are overlapping. And then Mary heads back home right before Elizabeth is due to give birth with the little John the Baptist. And as Mary herself is beginning to show, as she's entering her second trimester, that's when she goes back home to Nazareth. Okay, this is the timeline. Now, why do I bring all of that up? I th the reason I bring it up is I think this is the moment when Mary finds out she's pregnant. I think this moment is the moment Mary finds out she's pregnant. Remember, they don't have pregnancy tests, right? Remember, it's just been days since Gabriel announced the plan of God and Mary accepted it. There's no cell phones, there's no social media. Ma Elizabeth has no idea she's coming. She just shows up knocks on the door and says, hey, Aunt Elizabeth, it's me, Shalom, it's Mary. And then verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. <laughs> and I think this is the moment when Mary goes, it's happened. It's already happened. 
This is amazing. This 24-week-along preborn John the Baptist leaps in, Mary, in, in Elizabeth's womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies these words of blessing, and I think Mary is realizing in real time that what the angel has promised has actually happened. I am actually pregnant with the Son of the Most High God. The Messiah is already here, and he's in my womb. This is amazing. Now, that means Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant before Mary did. <laughs> and it means that little preborn John the Baptist knew before Elizabeth did. Isn't this amazing? You realize God told, Elizabeth went into seclusion, didn't tell anybody about her pregnancy. Gabriel announces Elizabeth's pregnancy to Mary, right? And now the Holy Spirit is announcing the pregnancy. This is amazing. Like God doesn't care about giving people the option of like announcing their own pregnancy. He's just like, no, no, no. I'm gonna let everyone know what's going on. Forget the normal patterns of things. I think this is amazing. That God would choose an in utero, pre-born baby to be the first witness of the coming of Messiah. This is amazing. The first witness of the incarnation is a preborn baby. It's amazing. 1.5 pounds, 12 and a half inches long, about the size of a pomegranate, right? Why do we do that? The babies are always fruit-sized, do you notice? It's so strange. 24 months along with translucent skin, just on the cusp of modern viability. And this is the one that God chooses to be the very first witness to the advent of his one and only son come down to the earth. Remember, John the Baptist's assignment was to prepare the way of the Lord to identify Jesus to the watching world. As John will later say, the friend of the bridegroom, that would be John, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And don't you see, John's just getting started early here. He's just getting started early. And the baby Jesus in Mary's womb, well, he was conceived just a matter of days ago. He's just a, a clump of blastocyst cells at this point. And John rejoices at his incarnate presence on earth. This is remarkable to me. In the Greco-Roman world, much like our world today, the unborn were considered subhuman and were afforded no legal rights or protections. Abortion and infanticide were widespread and rampant. But just look, look at the dignity, the humanity, the value that God bestows on these little ones. His son's messianic identity is recognizable just days beyond conception. 
And God calls this midterm preborn baby John to be the first witness of record to the reality of the incarnation. He calls as a witness to the stand someone without any legal rights of their own. This is amazing, but it's so like God, isn't it? Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, 14. Jesus healed lepers, outcasts from society, and he made them witnesses of the kingdom of God. On resurrection morning, the very first people to behold the risen Christ were women who didn't even have, uh, were not even allowed to give testimony in Greco-Roman courts of law. This is so like God. God takes the overlooked, the devalued, the discarded, and crowns them with glory. What a... What an unexpected witness this is. God takes an abortion candidate and calls him to the stand as a fully human witness to testify to the incarnation of the Son of God. (laughs) What an unexpected witness this is. Secondly, we see an unlikely pedigree here. Elizabeth's blessing of Mary is is touching, isn't it? It's very touching. She knows the magnitude of this event that's taking place. The mother of my Lord should come to me? (laughs) What an honor. The Lord of heaven and earth as a tiny embryo. Wow. And I love that she adds, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, which I think, (laughs) I think is a not so subtle jab at Zechariah, right? I mean, because he did not believe what, that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord said to him, right? Mary believed where Zechariah did not. And Elizabeth blesses her for her belief. And then Mary, overwhelmed with joy as she realizes she's pregnant with the Son of God, bursts out with this beautiful poem we know as the Magnificat. The Magnificat. It's the first ever Christmas carol. Yeah? Here it is. Verse 46. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, for generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You see how this praise is rising from the very core of her being, isn't it? My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All that is within her rises up to bless the one who has blessed her. She's brimming with joy, overflowing in worship, bursting with blessing. And notice her humility here. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary's like, you know, I'm just a nobody from nowhere. I'm a peasant girl 
from the sticks of Nazareth. You know, everybody makes fun of Nazareth. Those country bumpkins out there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they say? And yet, Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because God picked me of all people to bear his son into the world. He favored me, little old me, with this honor. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is simply astounding. You, friends, you realize God could have chosen anybody, anybody. He could have picked a young woman from any number of wealthy, affluent, well-connected, upwardly mobile Jewish families, but he didn't. He chose Mary, a nobody from nowhere. What an unlikely pedigree this is. The first choice for the incarnation is a peasant girl. Can you believe this? The first choice, God's first choice, hand-picked choice for the incarnation is a peasant girl. He looked on the humble estate of his servant. Friends, we know just how poor Joseph and Mary were because when they present Jesus to the te in the temple in Luke chapter 2, they offer a pair of turtle doves to the Lord, which was the offering you only could do if you were of the poorest of the, of the very poor. It's the equivalent of being on food stamps in ancient Israel. God could have had his son born into wealth or privilege, but instead he chose Mary. Why? Because God takes the overlooked, the devalued, the discarded, and crowns them with glory. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 30 and 31, Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what Mary's doing here. What an unlikely pedigree. God takes a welfare candidate and calls her to the noble honor of bearing the incarnate Son of God into the world. <laughs> what an unlikely pedigree, huh? It's an unexpected witness, an unlikely pedigree, and now an unparalleled kingdom. Mary's poem now expands from what God has done for her personally to what God is doing more broadly in the world. What God has done for Mary in blessing an unlikely person is just the sort of thing that God loves to do in the world because God is in the business of turning the world upside down. He's in the business of turning the world upside down. And Mary gives us three couplets 
of poetry here. Two, three pairs of statements with juxtaposing ideas. Let's look at them. The first couplet is verses 50 and 51. And his mercy for those who fear him from generation to gen- his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So here's the idea. For those who fear God, who, who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, yeah? God's mercy comes down. Generation after generation, this is how God always is. The humble receive his mercy. But those who are proud, those who, you know, think and feel, believe they're something, you know, something, thank you very much, you know, in the world. For those who are proud, God's mighty arm comes down and scatters them. The second couplet is in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Friends, Mary realizes if this baby in her womb is the Messiah, is the king, then Mary is tethered to his royalty. And this nobody from nowhere is being dragged along in association with her child to royal rank. You see that? She's part of the royal family, not by birth, but by association with the king. And those mighty folk who are on the thrones, who walk around with their crowns in pomp and circumstances, they better get ready because they're about to get shaken down as Jesus becomes king of kings and lord of lords. Now the third couplet is in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. She's saying, God filled the people with with nothing, that were starving. He filled their stomachs, and the rich who never skip a meal, they're the ones who go away empty. It's the reversal. Now, do you notice in all three couplets, you have the same basic thing going on? We have an illustration of the same principle that God is turning the world upside down. He's turning the world upside down. If Jesus is king, then God's kingdom is breaking into this world. And if God's kingdom is breaking into this world, then the world is being set to rights. It's an unparalleled kingdom that the likes of which the world has never seen before. See, in the kingdoms of earth, the proud, the mighty, the rich, those are the ones who end up on top, yes? But in the, king, in the, in the kingdom of earth, those who fear God, those who are of humble estate, those who are hungry, they're the ones on the bottom. But in the kingdom of heaven, if Jesus is king and the kingdom of heaven is breaking in, Mary knows everything's about to change. God is turning the world upside down in the upside down kingdom of heaven. The blessings of God flow not to the proud, but to the humble. Not not to the mighty, but to the lowly, the weak. Not to the rich, but to those who don't have anything in their stomachs. As Jesus will say in Luke chapter 6, 
verses 20 and 21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. See, friends, if God is indeed turning the world upside down in Jesus, then Mary realizes there's hope for Israel. There's hope for Israel. She brings this poem now to a crescendo in verses 54 and 55. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Because in Mary's day, friends, the nation of Israel was under the thumb of Roman rule. They were subjugated to the dust. They were oppressed until their backs were bent. They were taxed until they were living hand to mouth. And Mary longs for the day when King Jesus will right every wrong, when he will mend all that is broken, when he will redeem all that is lost, when he will make everything sad come untrue. Mary realizes in that day the promises of God that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the 12 tribes of Israel, will be entirely fulfilled as God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, at this point, we have to mention that at this point in human history, Mary doesn't have the advantage that we have of clearly distinguishing between Jesus' first and second comings. We know that in his first coming, Jesus came to set our world to rights in terms of our inward spiritual life. He died in our place and for our sake, he rose again to make us right with God. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords and he will one day return in his second coming and when he comes, he will set the world to rights in every way, not just inside our hearts but in all aspects of creation. Every wrong will be righted. Everything ugly will be made beautiful. Everything broken will be made whole. And Jesus will rule and reign with justice and righteousness forever. For the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? <laughs> in his first coming, Jesus sets the worlds to rights in here. In his second coming, Jesus will set the world to rights everywhere. And friends, on this side of the cross and resurrection, it's fairly easy for us to nuance that distinction. But Mary, unsurprisingly, just sees it all at once. Everything wrapped up together because Jesus' coming means that God is setting the world to rights. He's turning this world upside down. And this kingdom reversal, you see, has already begun as the Lord sets his favor upon the humble, the lowly, the impoverished, the peasant girl from obscurity in Nazareth. The first sign of the incarnation is a grand inversion. It's a grand inversion. 
The moment Jesus shows up, the world starts turning upside down. Or probably we should say, right side up. This grand inversion has already begun in the incarnation as God elevates Mary, a nobody from nowhere, and seats her in royal robes. Mary sees this as a sign of the things to come, where the blessings of God will flow, not to the proud, but to the humble, not to the mighty, but the lowly, not to the rich, but to the hungry. Because, friends, God loves to take the overlooked, the devalued, the discarded, and crown them with glory. <laughs> what an unexpected, unparalleled kingdom this is, where God takes unworthy candidates like you and me, sinners, rebels, enemies, and makes us royal sons and daughters of God by grace. Friends, Jesus' kingdom is turning the world upside down. Jesus' kingdom is turning the world upside down. It's what grace does. It's what grace does. Grace turns the world upside down. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the good news is, friends, that anyone who will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, if we will admit we are sinners far from God, if we will believe that Jesus alone has done everything to make us right with God, if we will commit our lives to him as our Savior, our Lord, and our King, God's grace will lift us up in due time. He will lift us to life everlasting and make us sons and daughters of the Most High God. Because God loves to take the overlooked, the devalued, the discarded, and crown them with glory. See, friends, you, you might think that the plot line of your life is just your own distinct story. And you hear about the story of Jesus, and it seems like a parallel plot line, and you don't understand how they connect. But friends, when those plot lines merge at the cross, and you realize that he is on that cross dying for you, exchanging his life for you, when he put himself in your place and for your sake and laid down his life, for you, when he looked on your humble estate and said, come to me, trust in me, and I will raise you to royal rank. I will tether you to my life, and you will be crowned and part of the royal family, not by virtue of your birth, but by virtue of your new birth in me. You will be tethered to the life and destiny of the king. That's my grace. And when grace comes and your storyline merges with the king of heaven, that's your aha moment. That's your moment of brilliance. Because Jesus' kingdom is turning the world upside down. Has he turned your world upside down? Has he turned your world upside down? Would you bow your heads and pray? with me. Oh, Father, this upside-down world is a mess. 
And we thank you that Jesus is in the business of setting it all to rights. And we may be overlooked, devalued, discarded, but in Jesus Christ, (laughs) you are crowning us with glory, just like Mary. It's all of grace. It's our only hope for the world to come, for this world to be turned upside down and set right side up forever. We look to the coming of King Jesus and the making of all things new, for it's in his name that we pray.